From the studios of HOME, it's Nordic on Tap. I'm your host, Eric Stavney, for this Nordic on Tap podcast of life stories, folk tales, and music of the Nordic countries, Iceland, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Sápmi, and the Faroe Islands, with contributions from folks west of the Atlantic as well. Welcome to the second podcast of Folk Tales. In a previous podcast, we considered the role that folktales play in society as stories of morality and the ways of the world, our connection with nature, our experience of evil, of love, and life, and death. Through stories, we can explore the mystical and the fantastical, as well as leaps of faith, chains of logic, inference, deduction, with a healthy dose of nasty trolls, irascible Nyssa, cranky badgers, and the occasional unicorn. In this podcast, we'll hear a Finnish folktale and a Norwegian one. First, about Finland. Finnish folktales are much like those found in the other Scandinavian countries, and really all of Northern Europe. The collectors of tales in these different countries found similar themes and plots in what they wrote down. The Grimm brothers, who published in uh, first in 1812 in Germany, As and Moore, who first published in 1841, Per Arvid Seva in Sweden in the 1870s, among others. And in Finland, aside from Elias Lönnrot, who wrote the great Finnish national epic poem, The Kalevala, there was a fellow named Erik Rudbeck. Rudbeck was a collector who wrote under the name Eru Salmelainen. In the 1850s, he published a set of four volumes, Soman Kasun Satayaya Taranoita, or Fairy Tales and Stories of the People of Finland. These were the first Finnish tales in book form. And as far as I can tell, these books have never been translated and made available in English, but you can find them as a single book online in Finnish, thanks to Project Gutenberg. More on this in a moment. Salmelainen's collection was the starting place for at least two other more contemporary books, Tales from a Finnish Tupa in 1936, and the one I'll read from today, uh, The Mighty Miko by Parker Heisted Fillmore. According to Britannica.com, Parker Fillmore was an American teacher who, early in his career, was assigned to teach English to children in the Philippines, except, sorry, he was told there were no textbooks available. So he made up stories in English based on life in the Philippines and was quickly a very popular teacher, and the children learned English quickly. That's what stories are for. In 1922, Fillmore published this great collection called The Mighty Miko, which is his retellings of some of Salomonine's stories that came out some uh, 70 years previously. 
You can download this book for free, thanks to Project Gutenberg, which takes old books in the public domain and republishes them in digital form for everybody who can go online and download a PDF. Since I'm going to be reading from this book, I'm obliged, therefore, to give the following disclaimer. This ebook, which you can download as I did, is for the use of anyone, anywhere, at no cost, and with almost no restrictions whatsoever. You may copy it, give it away, reuse it under the terms of Project Gutenberg's license included with the ebook or online at www.gutenberg.org. So today we'll hear the tale that gives the book its name, The Mighty Miko, M-I-K-K-O. Here we go. The Story of a Poor Woodsman and a Grateful Fox There once was an old woodsman and his wife who had an only son named Miko. As the mother lay dying, the young man wept bitterly. When you're gone, my dear mother, he said, there will be no one left to think of me. The poor woman comforted him as best she could and said to him, You will still have your father. Shortly after the woman's death, the old man, too, was taken ill. Now indeed I shall be left desolate and alone, Miko thought, as he sat beside his father's bedside and saw him grow weaker and weaker. My boy, the old man said just before he died, I have nothing to leave you but three snares, with which these many years I have caught wild animals. These snares now belong to you, and when I'm dead, go into the woods, and if you find a wild creature caught in any of them, free it gently and bring it home alive. After his father's death, Miko remembered the snares and went out into the woods to see them. The first was empty, also the second, but in the third he found a little red fox. He carefully lifted the spring that had shut down on one of the fox's paws and carried the little creature home in his arms. He shared his supper with it, and when he lay down to sleep, the fox curled up at his feet. They lived together some time until they became close friends. Miko, said the fox one day, why are you so sad? Because I'm lonely. Pooh, said the fox, that's no way for a young man to talk. You ought to get married. Then you wouldn't feel so lonely. Married, Miko repeated. How can I get married? I can't marry a poor girl because I'm too poor myself and a rich girl wouldn't marry me. Nonsense, said the fox. You're a fine, well-set-up young man and you're kind and you're gentle. What more could a young lady want? Miko laughed to think of the young lady wanting him for a husband. I mean what I say, the fox insisted. Take our own princess now. What would you think of marrying her? Miko laughed louder than before. Ha! I have heard that she is the most beautiful princess in the whole world. Any man would be happy to marry her. Very well, the fox said. If you feel that way about her, then I'll arrange the wedding for you. With that, the little fox actually did trot off to the royal castle and gain audience with the king. My master sends you greetings, the fox said, and he begs you to loan him your bushel measuring basket. That's what they used to measure out corn or grain with to the exact amount of one bushel. My bushel basket, the king repeated in surprise. Who is your master and why does he want my measuring basket? Shh, 
the fox whispered as though he didn't want the courtiers to hear what he was saying, and then slipping up quite close to the king, he murmured in his ear, "'Surely you've heard of Miko, haven't you? Mighty Miko, as he is called.' The king had never heard of any Miko who was known as the Mighty Miko, but thinking perhaps he should have heard of him, he shook his head and murmured, Hmm, Miko, Miko, oh, to be sure, yes, yes, of course. My master is about to start off on a journey, and he needs a bushel measuring basket for a very particular reason. I understand, I understand, the king said, although he didn't understand at all, and he gave orders that the basket, which they used to measure bushels in the storeroom of the castle, be brought and given to the fox. The fox carried off the basket and hid it in the woods. Then he scurried about to all sorts of little out-of-the-way nooks and crannies where people had hidden their savings, and he dug up a gold piece here and a silver piece there until he had a handful. Then he went back to the woods and stuck the various coins in the holes in the basket. The next day, he returned to the king. My master, mighty Miko, he said, sends you thanks, O king, for the use of your bushel basket. The king held out his hand, and when the fox gave him the basket, he peeked inside to see if by chance it contained any trace of what had recently been measured. His eye, of course, at once caught the glint of the gold and silver coins lodged in the cracks. Ah, he said, thinking Miko must be a very mighty lord indeed to be so careless of his wealth. I should like to meet your master. Won't you and he come and visit me? That was what the fox wanted the king to say, but he pretended to hesitate. I hmm, thank your majesty for the kind invitation, he said. "'But I fear my master can't accept it just now. "'He wants to get married soon, "'and we're about to start off on a long journey "'to inspect a number of foreign princesses.' "'This made the king all the more anxious "'to have Miko visit him at once, "'for he thought that if Miko should see his daughter "'before he saw those foreign princesses, "'he might fall in love with her and marry her. "'So he said to the fox, "'My dear fellow,' You must convince your master to make me a visit before he starts on his travels. You will, won't you? The fox looked this way and that as if he were too embarrassed to speak. Your majesty, he said at last, I pray you pardon my frankness. The truth is you're not rich enough to entertain my master and your castle isn't big enough to house the immense staff of assistants and advisors that always attends him. The king, who by this time was frantic to see Miko, was just about losing it. My dear fox, he said, I'll give you anything in the world if you convince your master to visit me at once. Couldn't you suggest him to travel with a limited staff this time? The fox shook his head. No, his rule is either travel with a full staff or to go on foot disguised as a poor woodsman attended only by me. Couldn't you convince him, then, to come disguised as a poor woodsman? The king begged. Once he was here, I could place gorgeous clothes at his disposal. But still the fox shook his head. I fear your majesty's wardrobe doesn't contain the kind of clothes my master is accustomed to. Oh, I, I assure you, I've got some very good clothes, the king said. Come along this minute and we'll go through them, and I'm sure you'll find some that your master would wear. 
And so they went to a room which was really like a big giant closet with hundreds and hundreds of hooks upon which there hung hundreds of coats and trousers and embroidered shirts. The king ordered his attendants to bring the costumes down one by one and place them before the fox. They began with the plainer clothes. Eh, good enough for most people, the fox said, but not for my master. Then they took down fancier, more expensive suits of a finer grade. I'm afraid you're going to go to all this trouble for nothing, the fox said. Frankly, now, don't you realize my master couldn't possibly put on any of those things? The king, who had hoped to keep for his own his most gorgeous clothes of all, now ordered these to be shown. The fox looked at them sideways, sniffed them critically, and at last said, Well, perhaps my master would consent to wear these for a few days. They're not what he's accustomed to wear, but I will say this for him. He's not proud. The king was overjoyed. Very well, my dear fox, I'll have the guest chambers put in readiness for your master's visit, and I'll have all these my finest clothes laid out for him. You won't disappoint me, will you? I'll do my best, the fox promised. With that, he bade the king a civil good day and ran home to Miko. The next day, as the princess was peeping out of an upper window of the castle, she saw a young woodsman approaching accompanied by a fox. He was a fine stalwart youth, and the princess, who knew from the presence of the fox that he must be Miko, gave a long sigh and confided to her serving maid, I think I could fall in love with that young man if he really were only a woodsman. Later, when she saw him arrayed in her father's finest clothes, which looked so well on Miko that no one even recognized them as the king's, she lost her heart completely. And when Miko was presented to her, she blushed and trembled just like any ordinary girl might before a handsome young man. All the court was equally delighted with Miko. The ladies went into ecstasies over his modest manners, his fine figure, and the gorgeousness of his clothes, and the old graybeard counselors, nodding their heads in approval, said to each other, Nothing stuck up about this young fellow in spite of his great wealth. Oh, see how politely he listens to us when we talk. The next day the fox went privately to the king and said, my master is a man of few words and quick judgment. He bids me to tell you that your daughter, the princess, pleases him mightily, and that, with your approval, he will make his addresses to her at once. Well, the king was greatly agitated and began, My dear fox, think the matter over carefully and give me your decision tomorrow. So the king consulted with the princess and with his counselors, and in a short time the marriage was arranged and the wedding ceremony was actually performed. Didn't I tell you? the fox said, when he and Miko were alone after the wedding. Yes, Miko acknowledged. You did promise that I should marry the princess. But tell me, now that I am married, what am I to do? I can't live on here in this castle forever with my wife. Put your mind at rest, the fox said. I've thought of everything. Just do as I tell you, and you'll have nothing to regret. Tonight, say to the king, it is now only fitting that you should visit me and see for yourself the sort of castle over which your daughter is hereafter to be mistress. When Miko said this to the king, the king was overjoyed. 
for now that the marriage had actually taken place, he was wondering whether he hadn't perhaps been a little hasty. Miko's words reassured him, and he eagerly accepted the invitation. On the morrow, the fox said to Miko, Now, I'll run on ahead and get things ready for you. But where are you going? Miko said, frightened at the thought of being deserted by his little friend. The fox drew Miko aside and whispered softly, A few days' march from here, there's a very gorgeous castle belonging to a wicked old dragon who is known as the Worm. I think the Worm's castle would just about suit you. I'm sure it would, Miko agreed, but how are we to get it away from the Worm? Trust me, the fox said. All you need to do is this. Lead the king and his advisors along the main highway. Until about noon tomorrow, you'll reach a crossroads. Turn there to the left and go straight on until you see the tower of the worm's castle. If you meet any men by the wayside, shepherds or the like, ask them whose men they are and show no surprise at their answer. So now, dear master, farewell until we meet again at your beautiful castle. The little fox trotted off at a smart pace, and Miko and the princess and the king, attended by the whole court, followed in a more leisurely fashion. The little fox, when he had left the main highway at the crossroads, soon met ten woodsmen with axes over their shoulders. They were all dressed in blue smocks of the same cut. "'Good day,' the fox said politely. "'Whose men are you?' "'Our master is known as the Worm,' the woodsman told him. "'My poor lads,' the fox said, shaking his head sadly. "'What's the matter?' the woodsman asked. For a few moments, the fox pretended to be too overcome with emotion to speak, and then he said, "'My poor lads, don't you know that the king is coming with a great army to destroy the worm and all his people?' The woodsmen were simple fellows, and this news made them very anxious. "'Is there no way for us to escape?' they asked. The fox put his paw on his head and thought. "'Well,' he said at last, "'there is one way you might escape, "'and that is by telling everyone who asks you "'that you are mighty Miko's men. "'But if you value your lives, "'never again say that your master is the worm.'" "'We are mighty Miko's men!' The woodsmen at once began repeating over and over, "'We are mighty Miko's men!' A little farther on the road, the fox met twenty grooms, dressed in the same blue smocks who were tending a hundred beautiful horses. The fox talked to the twenty grooms as he had talked to the woodsmen, and before he left them, they too were shouting, We are mighty eagles men! Next, the fox came to a huge flock of a thousand sheep, tended by thirty shepherds all dressed in the worm's blue smocks, and he stopped and talked to them until he had them all roaring out, We are mighty eagles men! Then the fox trotted on until he reached the castle of the worm. He found the worm himself inside, lolling lazily about. He was a huge dragon and had been a great warrior in his day. In fact, his castle and his lands and his servants and his possessions had all been won in battle. But now for many years, no one had cared to fight him, and he had grown fat and lazy. Fox walked through the castle and found the dragon in a huge throne room. Good day, said the fox, pretending to be very breathless and frightened. Um, you're the worm, aren't you? Yes, the dragon said boastfully. I am the great worm. 
The fox pretended to grow more agitated. Oh, my poor fellow, I'm sorry for you. But of course, none of us can expect to live forever. Well, I must hurry along. I thought I would just stop and say goodbye. Made uneasy by the fox's words, the worm cried out, Wait just a minute! What's the matter? The fox was already at the door. But at the worm's entreaty, he paused and said over his shoulder, Why, my poor fellow, you surely know, don't you, that the king with a great force is coming to destroy you and all your people. What? The worm gasped, turning a sickly green with fright. He knew he was fat and helpless and could never again fight as in the years gone by. Don't go just yet, he begged the fox. When is the king coming? He's on his way on the highway now. That's why I must be going goodbye. My dear fox, stay a moment and I'll reward you richly. Help me to hide so the king won't find me. What about the shed where the linen is stored? I could crawl under the linen and then if you locked the door from outside, the king would never find me. Very well, the fox agreed. But we must hurry. So they ran outside to the shed where the linen was kept and the worm hid himself under the linen. The fox locked the door and then set fire to the shed and soon there was nothing left of that wicked old dragon, the worm, but a handful of ashes. The fox now called together the dragon's household and talked them all over to Miko as he had the woodsmen and the grooms and the shepherds. Meanwhile... The king and his party were slowly covering ground over which the fox had sped so quickly. When they came to the ten woodsmen in blue smocks, the king said, I wonder whose woodsmen these are. One of his attendants asked the woodsmen, and ten of them shouted at the top of their lungs, We are mighty Miko's men! Miko said nothing, and the king and all the court were impressed anew with his modesty. A little farther on, they met the twenty grooms with their hundred prancing horses, when the grooms were questioned, they answered with a shout, We are mighty Miko's men! The fox certainly spoke the truth, the king thought to himself, when he told me of Miko's riches. A little later, the thirty shepherds, when they were questioned, made answer in a chorus that was deafening to hear, We are mighty Miko's men! The sight of the thousand sheep that belonged to his son-in-law made the king feel poor and humble in comparison, and the courtiers whispered among themselves, For all his simple matter, mighty Miko must be a richer, more powerful lord than the king himself. In fact, it's only a very great lord indeed who could be so simple. At last they reached the castle, and they knew from the blue-smocked soldiers that guarded the gateway that they were at Miko's castle. The fox came out to welcome the king's party, and behind him in two rows all the household servants. These, at a signal from the fox, cried out in one voice, We are mighty Miko's men! Then Miko, in the same simple manner that he would have used his father's mean little hut in the woods, bade the king and his followers welcome, and they all entered the castle, where they found a great feast already prepared and waiting. The king stayed on for several days, and the more he saw of Miko, the better pleased he was that he had him for a son-in-law. When he was leaving, he said to Miko, Your castle is so much grander than mine that I hesitate ever asking you back for a visit. My dear father-in-law, when I first entered your castle, I thought it was the most beautiful castle in the world. 
The king was flattered, and the courtiers whispered among themselves, How nice of him to say that when he knows very well how much grander his own castle is. When the king and his followers were safely gone, the little red fox came to Miko and said, Now, my master, you have no reason to feel sad and lonely. You are lord of the most beautiful castle in the world, and you have for wife a sweet and lovely princess. You have no longer any need of me, so I am going to bid you farewell. Miko thanked little fox for all he had done, and the little fox trotted off into the woods. So, you see that Miko's poor old father, although he had no wealth to leave his son, was really the cause of all of Miko's good fortune, for it was he who told Miko, in the first place, to carry home alive anything he might find caught in the snares. Let's hear now a little music from the Folk Voice Band of Shoreline, just outside of Seattle, from their Scandinavian Trio album. CDs are available on their website, thefolkvoiceband.com, all one word. The song is a humpa called Lap and Randan, which Google tells me is a city on the shore of uh, Lake Saima in southeastern Finland.
Next, we have one of Norway's classics, collected by Peter Asbjørnsen and Jürgen Mue, which can be found in many excellent collections and free online. This one, however, is read from the complete and original Norwegian folktales of Asbjørnsen and Mue, translated by Teina Nunnally, with permission of the University of Minnesota Press. Now, I love folktales so much that I read them to my kids from when they were very young, and they've now grown up into their 20s. Of course, they have their own absolute favorites. So I drafted my son Carl to read his favorite tale about the lad who went to the north wind and demanded the flower back. There once was an old woman who had a son. She was very feeble and frail, so the boy was supposed to go out to the storehouse to get some flour for her to make porridge for dinner. But when he came out onto the steps of the storehouse, the north wind rushed over to him, grabbed the flour, and flew with it through the air. The boy went back inside the storehouse to get some more, but when he came out onto the steps, the north wind again rushed over to him and grabbed the flour. The same thing happened a third time. That made the boy mad. He thought it was unreasonable for the north wind to behave like that, so he decided to seek out the wind and demand the flower back. Then he set off, but it was a long way. He walked and walked, until finally he came to the north wind. Good day, said the boy. Good seeing you again. Good day, replied the north wind. His voice was rough. Good seeing you too. What do you want, he said. Oh, said the boy, I want to ask if you'd kindly return the flower you took from me on the storehouse steps. We don't have much, and when you behave like that, taking what little we have... There's nothing for us to do but starve to death. I don't have any flour, said the north wind, but seeing as you're in such great need, I'll give you a tablecloth that will bring you whatever you want. All you have to say is, cloth, spread out and let me see all manner of costly foods. The boy was quite happy with that, but it was such a long way back that he wouldn't be able to reach home that day, so he stopped at an inn. When he saw that the folks there were about to eat supper, he placed the cloth on the table in the corner and said, cloth, spread out, and let me see all manner of costly foods. No sooner did he say those words than the cloth did as he asked, and everybody thought it was a wondrous thing. But no one was more pleased than the innkeeper's wife. With that sort of tablecloth, she thought, I won't have to bother with frying and boiling, with placing and setting, or with serving and clearing away. As night fell, and everyone went to sleep, she took the boy's tablecloth and replaced it with another that looked exactly the same as the one the north wind had given him, though it couldn't produce even Otlefsa. When the boy awoke, he gathered up the tablecloth and went on his way. That day, he returned home to his mother. So, he said, I've been to see the north wind. He was a reasonable man, for he gave me this tablecloth. When I say, cloth, spread out and let me see all manner of costly foods, then I will have everything I could ever want to eat. Well, that may be, said his mother, but I won't believe it until I see it. The boy hurried to sit down at the table. There he set the cloth and said, Cloth, spread out and let me see all manner of costly foods. But the cloth didn't produce so much as a scrap of crisp bread. Well, there's nothing for it. I'll just have to go and see the north wind again, said the boy. And he set off. Late in the afternoon, he arrived at the home of the north wind. Good evening, said the boy. Good evening, said the north wind. I want payment for the flour you took from me, said the boy. That tablecloth you gave me wasn't worth much. I don't have any flour, said the north wind. But here's a goat that will make gold ducats. All you have to say is, my goat, make coins. The boy was happy with that, but it was such a long way back 
that he wouldn't be able to reach home that day, so he again took lodging at the inn. Before he asked for anything, he tried out the goat, for he wanted to see if it was true what the north wind had said. And it turned out to be true enough. But when the innkeeper saw what happened, he thought it was a splendid goat. So when the boy was sound asleep, the innkeeper put in its place another goat that did not make gold ducats. The next morning, the boy went on his way. When he returned home to his mother, he said, The north wind is a kind man after all. He gave me a goat that can make gold ducats. All I have to say is, my goat, make coins. Well, that may be, said his mother, but it could be nothing but talk. I won't believe it until I see it. My goat, make coins, said the boy, but what the goat made was not coins. Again, he went to see the north wind. He told him the goat was worthless and he wanted payment for the flower. Well, I have nothing more to give you, said the north wind, except for this old stick in the corner. When you say, my stick, strike, it will keep on striking until you say, my stick, stop. Again, it was a long way home. So the boy stopped at the inn that night as well. He now realized what must have happened to the tablecloth and the goat, so when he lay down on the bench, he began to snore at once and pretended to be asleep. The innkeeper could tell that the stick also had certain powers. He found another stick that looked the same, and was about to swap them, for he could hear the boy snoring. But just as the innkeeper was about to take the stick, the boy shouted, My stick! Strike! And the stick began hitting the innkeeper, making him jump over tables and benches as he shouted and screamed, Oh, good lord! Oh, good lord! Make the stick stop, or it will beat me to death! I'll give you back the tablecloth and the goat! When the boy decided the innkeeper had suffered enough, he said, My stick! Stop! Then he stuffed the tablecloth in his pocket, picked up the stick, tied a rope around the goat's horns, and took everything home. That was proper payment for the flower. That's our show. Special thanks to the Folk Voice Band, Birgit Ages, Philip Ages, and Chris Luquette for letting me play their songs. Thanks to my children who support my love of folklore and Carl's cameo today for The Lad Who Went to the North Wind, and to the University of Minnesota Press for letting us read from their book. The toe-tapping tune of Nordic on Tap was composed and performed by Daryl Jackson at daryljacksonmusic.com, D-A-R-R-Y-L-J-A-C-K-S-O-N, music.com, all one word. And be sure to catch our podcast where we interview Daryl. It's not to be missed. Thank you also to the Norwegian American News, the last remaining Norwegian immigrant newspaper in the United States, for hosting a link to this show on their website. Be sure to catch the podcast where we interviewed Editor-in-Chief Lorianne Reinhall in the spring of 2020. The newspaper offers new articles all the time at NorwegianAmerican.com, that's all one word, and you can subscribe and help support a Nordic business during these challenging times. Please catch our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Pandora, or at our podcast home at nordicontap.podbean.com. We're also on Facebook, and we'd love to hear from you at nordicontap at gmail.com. Till next time on Nordic on Tap, I'm Eric Stabney. Viseas. I can't live on here in the king's castle forever with my former wife. No.
At last, they reached the shoal from the blue-smocked shoulders that this was from which the blue-smocked shoulders, <laughs> the blue-smocked soldiers that guarded the gateway. Uh, oh, good lord! Oh, good lord! Make the stick stop, or it will beat me to death. I'll give you back the tablecloth and the goat. Someone's hitting a plastic box. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We are learning to do. Oh, come on, guys. That was lousy.